0: Y'all doing okay today? All right, all right. Uh, it's a blessing to be here to be able to preach God's Word this morning. Uh, we are continuing in our Ecclesiastes series, and uh, today we're going to talk about a tough topic. We're actually going to talk about the, topic, to- the topics of injustice and oppression. And uh, before we get into the Word, before we get into the sermon, I'd like for us to pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your power. I pray that you would be mightily at work in and through your word in this moment together. It's in Christ's name, amen. So we've all seen injustice and oppression. From childhood bullies to war crime to slavery, examples of injustice abound. Conversations about the topic are tough, Politics, sociology, worldview differences, these all cloud our understanding and the way we hear one another. And so as I talk about oppression and injustice this morning, I wanna start by defining oppression and injustice from a biblical and a theological perspective. The uh, theological word book of the Old Testament defines oppression as acts of abuse or of power or authority acts of abuse of power or authority, the burdening, trampling, and crushing of those lower station. in station. In other words, uh, oppression is using power or authority to hold other people down, to crush them. And the theological word book of the Old Testament defines justice, uh, injustice as deviating from a right standard or to act contrary to what is right. I, I can't say, and I won't say everything about justice and injustice but my aim is to show you this though injustice is everywhere God makes all things right though injustice is everywhere God makes all things right and so our first point this morning is going to be that injustice is indeed everywhere injustice is everywhere Uh, from birth we are we expect to be able to breathe right? We come out of the womb and we take our first breath. But there are two things in my life that make breathing difficult. One is exercise-induced asthma and two is sleep apnea. So the first one, exercise-induced asthma, it usually hits me quick. Um, I'll be out running or I'll be out in the cold and all of a sudden I'll start to cough and I'll, I'll start to not breathe. I'll be wheezing and just kind of struggling to catch on. And, and for many Injustice is like that exercise-induced asthma. You're going through life, and injustice just kind of hits you out of nowhere. And you call the cops, you go to court, you handle the situation, you talk to your boss, whatever, and then it's gone. Yet, for others, injustice is kind of like sleep apnea. I I was diagnosed about a year ago. All night long, uh, 17 times a night, I stop breathing, or my breathing is labored. And I wake up, it's always there. If I don't use my CPAP, I wake up and I'm tired, I'm groggy, I'm brain fogged, I just feel horrible. And once the treatment is there, it's a long-term intensive treatment. I got, I got to use the CPAP every night or else I'll feel the effects of sleep apnea. And for many people, injustice is always there. Oppression is always there. It's in the background. It's the undercurrent. The effects are always felt and without a long-term intensive treating of the injustice, it's not just going to resolve itself. And so what we're going to see is that for some people, injustice is everyday life. But yet for many of us, injustice isn't something we always deal with. Oppression isn't something that we always feel. But I want us to, to build sympathy. I want us to understand biblically what, impre- what oppression and injustice are so that we can care for those in both circumstances. And what we see in Ecclesiastes is that oppression and injustice, they affect us at a person-to-person level. Oppression and injustice affect us person-to-person. In Ecclesiastes 8, verses 10 and 14, let's flip there. Ecclesiastes 8, if we look at verse 10, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this is vanity also. On a person-to-person level, we sometimes see wicked people treated better than us. We see righteous people treated poorly. It doesn't seem fair, we see wicked people honored and righteous people dishonor. The sneaky salesman gets the promotion, gets the sale. We see this all the time. Evil people have monuments and statues and buildings named after them, and righteous people go unknown. Psalm 73, he talks about how the, he's almost envious of the evil because they seem to prosper. Why do they prosper? He says, I almost lost my way because I see the prosperity of the wicked. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4. Then I saw all the, that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. At work, we see envy and hatred for our neighbor. Sometimes that envy and hatred drives us. We chase success because we want what someone else has. We see that nice car, that nice house, that country club membership, and that's what we want. We envy what they have, so we run over people to get it. We utter the phrase, it's a dog-eat-dog world. I will stomp all over you and devour you to get to where I need to be. That envy, it leads us to sin against others in word and in deed. We slander, we gossip, we cheat, we lie, we steal. That is the picture of humanity that the teacher sees here. But then we see oppression and injustice reach places that ought to be safe places. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and yet there are higher ones over them. We see wickedness in the place of justice. In the place of righteousness, we see wickedness. Wicked leaders watch and protect others. Some people are slimy at the top and they have people protecting and guarding them. Sometimes they're even opposed to one another so they crush people to outlast each other. And this injustice at the top, this injustice in the place of judgment and righteousness, it trickles down. Corrupt leaders up top, can destroy an entire system do you understand this let's look at David and Uriah David is at the top he's the king he's supposed to execute justice for God's people as a man after God's own heart yet he wanted Uriah's wife he wanted Uriah dead so what did he do He goes to Joab, a commander of the army, he says, put Uriah out in the front of the battlefield so that he can die. Joab puts Uriah out there, he dies at the hand of an opposing army. At the ground level, it looks like the opposing army did the injustice. But the system is what killed Uriah, the leader at the top. King David used his power over Joab, who used his power over Uriah to kill Uriah. We don't always see that. The media doesn't always show us that. But there can be corruption up top that trickles down and affects people at the bottom. And that's what it's saying here. If you see this, don't be astonished. Don't be amazed. Why? Because oppression and injustice happen when the image of God, people made in God's image, clash with the total depravity of humanity. We can't be surprised when totally depraved people get to the top and they clash with the image of God and others. We want what we want and our sin nature will cause us to wreck people for it. And then Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 3, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, and there was no one to comfort them. There was no one to comfort the oppressed. Apart from Christ, there's no comfort for the oppressed. Why? Why? Because who can promise that oppression will always be over for somebody who's under the thumb of oppression? One government leader comes in and changes the policy. Another one comes in and they change the policy. A foreign nation invades, they overtake you. There is never a promise or a guarantee that any of us can avoid oppression or injustice. There is no hope. When the big shots are controlling things and they're protecting each other, I can never promise you apart from Christ, in this earth, that your oppression will be gone. I can't. No one can. Without Christ, look at the wording here in verse 2. I thought the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. In a world without the gospel, it would be better to not be born than to experience the grief of oppression and injustice. That's heavy. That landed on me like a ton of bricks this week. This is a heavy subject, and you're allowed to feel the weight and gravity of human depravity and oppression and injustice. You're allowed to feel that. Sit with it. A healthy response is to be grieved and sobered by oppression and injustice, but not to wallow in its misery. Is there any hope for us in a world where injustice is everywhere? My answer is yes. Why? Because the cross of Jesus Christ was the greatest injustice. What we're about to celebrate on Friday is the greatest injustice in the universe but it's the most powerful hope we can have in this world where injustice is everywhere. You see, Jesus entered this fallen world to help those who endure the oppression and injustice of this world. Jesus came in this world to help those who feel the oppression and the injustice. Jesus took the legs out of the status quo. He called tax collectors to repent. He kicked the money changers out of the temple. He talked with the Samaritan woman who had been married five times and was living with the next one. He healed people with unclean spirits, diseases, blindness, deafness, and disabilities who were social outcasts. He touched lepers who were unclean. He restored a withered hand. He gave the gospel to the Gentile Syrophoenician woman. He came proclaiming the gospel and calling people to repent and believe, yet He also corrected many injustices and helped to free people from their oppressive circumstances. We have hope today because Jesus came for oppressed people. But we also have hope today because Jesus endured oppression and injustice to grant ultimate justice and freedom to grant ultimate justice and freedom. As our great high priest, Jesus experienced a life of oppression and injustice himself. Jesus faced the person-to-person oppression. He was slandered. He was gossiped about. His family thought he was crazy. He was mocked for being from no-name Nazareth. He didn't have a place to lay his head. And yet he also faced the big, up-top, systemic oppression from the Roman government in a host of ways, and yet he never sinned, he never oppressed, he was never unjust in any way, in any act of his life. But also Jesus purchased our freedom from the greatest oppression in the universe. Jesus faced the top level, trickled down injustice in his unjust, unfair trial and crucifixion. You see, the religious elites, they had created a story. He's a blasphemer. He's a temple destroyer. He's a Sabbath breaker. He's a misleader of the people. Get rid of him. The Romans said, "Uh, we don't see anything wrong. Why would we mess with this guy? The, The Jews said, we can't kill him lawfully. So they passed him on to a higher authority. Then Herod and Pilate passed him back and forth, back and forth, still innocent, still no charge. But then they caved to the pressure when the Jewish leaders said, anyone who claims to be king is disloyal to Caesar. If you let this man live, you're letting a disloyal man live. So what did they do? They unjustly freed a murderer and put Jesus in his place. Then they beat him multiple times, even though he was innocent. They beat him with whips. They sentenced him to crucifixion, and he died. He died, but he rose again. And his throne is a throne of righteousness. The scepter of his kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. And his death frees us from the most significant oppression we will ever face, oppression from the world, oppression from our flesh, oppression from the devil. Through the power of the gospel, through what Jesus did on the cross, We don't have to love the world. We don't have to bow to the world's pressure. Through what Jesus did on the cross in the gospel, we have the power to kill sin which seeks to crush and oppress us. Through what Jesus did on the cross, we can resist the oppressive devil who brought oppression to us in the Garden of Eden when he said, God is not enough. Through the gospel, Jesus endured the greatest injustice in order to offer the greatest act of mercy the universe will ever see. God's justice means that we all deserve death for sin, but the injustice towards Jesus means life for believers because God's justice for our sin, our oppression, our injustice was poured out on Jesus. And because someone paid for it, God is faithful and just to forgive those who believe. The question I have for you this morning is, will you believe? The question I have is, have you believed? Have you believed in the Christ who defeated death, who defeated sin, who crushed injustice and oppression through his death, and then rose again and is seated on a throne of perfect righteousness? Will you believe in him? And if your answer to that is yes, where do we go from here? And I want to discuss three topics: passivity, compassion, and patience in a world of injustice. You see, we we have hope because of Jesus. We have hope because of what we're gonna hear a week from now on Easter Sunday. Jesus will, he, he has risen, He is seated on the throne, and Jesus will re-enter this fallen world to bring an end to all oppression and injustice." Does that get you excited? I'm, I'm listening to a Ty Tribute song this morning. It says, we're going to be all right. Why? Because God has got us. We're going to be all right. For every Christian, our hope is that Christ will indeed return to make all things right. Jesus will devour Satan. Jesus will desire all who reject him. Jesus will He will devour all who continue in oppression and sin and refuse to turn from it. The question for us is how should we wait? How should we live as we wait? And the first thing that I saw in this word this week was we need to reject passivity. We need to reject passivity. And the reason I say that is we can be tempted uh, to misuse God's word. Satan would love for us to misuse Ecclesiastes 5 to say, Just be passive. Don't worry about it. But that's not God's stance and it's not ours. Let's read Ecclesiastes 5 once more. I just want to read verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. If you read that and Satan gets in your ear, don't be amazed by it. That's just part of the world. That's just the way of the world. I guess we just keep on living how we live. As long as it doesn't affect me, I'm good. A song by one of my favorite rappers, Swoop, says, Sex trade, little girl's getting slaughtered. Long as it ain't my little girls, I ain't bothered. He was saying sarcastically, when it doesn't affect us, it doesn't seem to matter. But that's not what God calls us to here. Do not be amazed It's not a call to passivity. It's a call to understand that oppression is going to be in this world, to understand why it's happening, but it does not call us to sit back. So, so how do we fight passivity? How do we reject passivity? We pray when we see injustice. That's a first step. That's not one of those, uh, we can't do anything else, we might as well pray. No, we ought to pray genuine, earnest prayer when we see injustice. Because even if we can't do anything about it, we serve a God who can. We serve a God who can raise up troops wherever he's at. Russia, North Korea, China, United States to fight injustice and oppression when we can't. But number two, we need to confess and repent of any known injustice in our lives. We're not off the hook. Maybe you're an authority over somebody and you're oppressing them every day at work. Maybe you're working as part of a corrupt company or a corrupt system that is oppressing others and contributing to injustice. Maybe you're just a horrible person to work with because all you're worried about is yourself and tearing down everybody else. We've got to confess and repent of known injustice in our lives. Parents, we've got to repent when we want to control our kids and we parent them the wrong way. We've got got to confess. But then we need to fight injustice as the Lord leads. And I want to be cautious here. I'm not trying to heap on you some sort of legalistic standard of what it means to fight injustice. There are clear scriptures that tell us what injustice is to fight. We gotta take care of the widow, we gotta take care of the orphan, we are called not to oppress those people. But beyond that, there are stances we can all take, and one stance may be yours and one stance may be mine. I can't command you to go protest at every abortion clinic in the country. Some of my Facebook friends want me to. I can't demand that from you. I can't demand you to go to some protest in downtown just because there's a protest. That's not what I'm saying here. But what I am saying is if you have been called by God, if you have read the scriptures, if you feel as though the Lord is putting it on your heart to fight injustice, anything that you do without faith is sin. Go do it. Go do what the Lord has put on you to do and and just ask for his help. Walk by the Spirit and help people under oppression. Next thing we see, uh, we, we need to choose compassion. Why do I say we need to choose compassion? Because Jesus is our example. Jesus is our example. Matthew 9.35, Jesus is looking out over the city and he's moved with compassion towards those who are helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he saw people who were under religious oppression, but in the Jewish culture, being under religious oppression was more than just church life. It was everything. That was your whole identity, it was, it was everything for you. And he had compassion on them. But in Luke 14, I want you to flip there if you've got your Bibles. Luke 14, verses 16, or starting at verse uh, 17, actually. Luke chapter four verses, verse 17 here. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus. Jesus unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You can certainly make an argument that that passage has a spiritual sense, spiritual poverty, spiritual bondage. I 100% agree with that. But when you look at the action of Jesus's ministry, where was he at? Who did he go to? He went to the poor. He went to those captive by demonic spirits. He went to the blind. He went to the oppressed. Jesus spiritually and physically went to those under oppression, facing injustice. We need to have Christ-like compassion. We see a savior who touched the untouchable and healed the unhealable and he has sent us into the world to do the same thing. Will you have compassion for those under oppression? Will you stop watching the news and reading the feeds and simply sit down with somebody and ask them about it? Will you cross paths with someone whose life is not as easy as yours and just listen and weep with them? and cry out to God on their behalf, and fight for them. We are called to compassion for those oppressed. But guess what? The gospel turns everything upside down. We're also called to have compassion on our oppressors. We're called to have compassion on the people at the top of the system who are causing the problems. You don't believe me? Ask the Apostle Paul, who got knocked off his high horse, On his way to kill more Christians and oppress the body of Christ, why do you persecute me? Jesus asked him. You still don't believe me? What about Zacchaeus, the tax collector? What about Levi, the tax collector, who became a disciple? Jesus had compassion on people who are oppressing others. He knew who they were, and he chose to show them grace and mercy. Compassion should lead to caring for the bodies and the souls of oppressed people, but also for the bodies and the souls of those who are oppressing and are unjust. The gospel is the cure for both. The gospel is the answer, for where would we be without the grace of God? Where would we be? Jesus calls us to pray for our enemies, for those who persecute us. He calls us to love our enemies. And sometimes that means loving the person who's got his foot on you. Because God may lift that foot off of you, and y'all might walk hand in hand into his kingdom. And wouldn't that be a mighty, mighty testament of the gospel? Lastly, as we wait for Jesus, we need to pray with patience. So we need to reject passivity, we need to choose compassion, and we need to pray with patience. As I was reading and as I was studying this week, Two words came to my mind, and I started diving into the scriptures, and sure enough, there was plenty of examples. The phrase was, how long? How long is a refrain we see throughout the Bible? Some of us are in oppression, and we want to get out. We long to be out of it. We long to see injustice stop happening. Others of us long to see the people we love set free from oppression and injustice. And the question we can ask is, how long? We can ask our oppressors, how long? Like the psalmist did in Psalm chapter 4, verse 2. We can tell the Lord of our troubles and ask, O Lord, how long? As the psalmist did in Psalm chapter 6, verse 3. We can ask the Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked celebrate? As we see in Psalm 94, verse 3. Even if we are martyred for our faith, we can cry out, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth as we read in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. The reason we can cry out how long is because we have a God who is present with us in the oppression. We have a God who is present with us in the oppression. That's why there were black pastors and believers in the 1800s who kept fighting and and fighting for the abolition of slavery fighting against racism it's why we see so many black leaders still going today because instead of giving up and being mad at god for the oppression they said how long oh god and god said it'll be it'll be over soon and it's not completely over everything's not perfect every injustice is not resolved for black people or for anyone in any sort of slavery But God answered the question, how long? They persevered, they fought, and we continue to fight, not just for race, but for all people under injustice and oppression. We ask the Lord, how long? I was reading uh, my McShane reading plan this morning, Proverbs 20. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. Ask how long, and then wait for him. And he will deliver you. Injustice is everywhere, but God makes all things right. I'll say it again. Injustice is everywhere, but God makes all things right. Injustice will not have the final answer. God already promised that. And we know that God is faithful and he is true. So we believe, we pray, we fight. We endure and we wait with patience. And as we go, as we press on, as we continue on, we can rest in the faithful words of Jesus. Surely, I am coming soon. Surely, I am coming soon. I wept tears of joy listening to that song this morning. Because sometimes just thinking about the weight of oppression is so heavy. But we're going to be all right because Jesus is coming soon. Let us all say with the Apostle John in Revelation 20, verse 20. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you hold us up when we are weak. You strengthen us when we don't have the energy to move on to keep pressing on. You work through injustice and oppression. The pressure that's on us turns us into diamonds and yet we won't have to suffer like this forever. Whether we are the people with the, the foot on someone's neck or whether we're the ones under the foot, God, I pray that the gospel would encourage us and uplift us God, I pray that you would be our comforter. There is no comfort under the sun apart from Christ, but in Christ, your peace can dwell in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that the peace of Christ would dwell in each of our hearts this morning. For some of us, it's peace from enmity with you for the first time. It's coming to faith and believing in you for the first time, repenting and confessing and casting our injustice and oppression upon you. For some of us, it's that we've been under oppression and injustice for so long. We're angry, we're hurt, we're bruised, but we need help forgiving. But for those of us who believe, Lord, those of us who believe and are suffering oppression and injustice, for those of us who are weeping with those who are weeping, Lord, let your peace rule in our hearts. Fill us with love and patience and fight and grit and joy so that we can press on. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's in Christ's name that we pray.